I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is about art. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. My guest is a fellow podcaster and a journalist and a fellow mom, Charlotte Burns. She is thoughtful and insightful and generous and gracious and the conversation was exactly what I needed today. Social mediaification of our brains happening and the sort of lack of space for conversation. And I think everybody feels that though. Everybody I talk to seems to feel that. And so there is a an appetite, I think, for deeper conversations, for disagreements that can be held again with grace. And I hope it finds you in the same way that it found me today. I'd love to just jump right in because that idea of listening and both what it looks like to listen, but then also what it feels like to listen, I think is key. And in some of my early podcasts, some of the response has been, some people really like knowing that you're listening and and the spaces basically for thinking, and then other people want it to be quicker. So I'm wondering how you think about listening and thinking and the time and space that both take. I'm interested what you mean when you say some people like it to be quicker. In what way? You mean kind of the repartee to go back and forwards? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think with podcasts, it's a really special media because once people trust you, mm-hmm. then they're quite open with that trust. They're quite generous with their time. And I don't think that's the case with written media anymore. When I was finishing at the art newspaper in 2016, I remember feeling like to get someone to read an article, it was a little bit like trying to keep them on a bullet train. You had to get them really quickly to the destination because most people aren't going to read 500 words, let alone 2000 words. And so as people are reading less and less, you know, you start thinking as a journalist about how you communicate with them. And I think that podcasts are a really interesting forum because your if you know your podcast becomes part of somebody else's habitual behavior. And mm-hmm. so I always ask people, like, when do you listen to the show? And I always love hearing how people fit it in because for some people it's when they're doing the laundry, for other people it's when they're swimming and they have waterproof earbuds. Other people, it's walking the dog, picking up the kids. If they're in LA, it's usually a lot of driving. In New York, it might be the subway or at the gym. So it's really interesting to think about how people listen. And my experience is that once, you know, with articles, I don't think there's that much trust or patience attached to names of journalists or even or even publications. 
you know, you can write about different things and have completely different audiences for each article. Whereas for a podcast, I think there is, again, this, this sense of generosity that people, if if they're with you, they'll they'll stick with you for a while. Even if you're introducing them to ideas and conversations, they may not have clicked on if it were a headline. I love the idea of it being generous, both as a listener and also as a, a content creator. And I've always been really drawn to this idea of generosity and and I've always said kind of about myself that, you know, I try and err on the side of generosity. And and that's when I have been running an institution, that's how I've done it as well. And I hadn't really thought about that with podcasting. So I, I, I love that. I'm going to sit with that a bit more. Yeah, I think it's also we have the podcast I do with Alan Schwartzman. We have a great team of editorial advisors, um, Mia Locks, Dina Hagag and Jay Sanders. And Dina talks a bit about grace holding grace and space which i think is a slightly more elegant way of talking about generosity and and i think it's hard to find that in written media it's hard to find that in social media it's hard to find that often in our lives and so i think if there are conversations where you can offer people a little bit of that space then it's a great thing if people mm-hmm. can find that space in their day or in a conversation or even just in a thought that maybe they didn't have and, and to take it even slightly further with guests when I first started in other words I knew it wasn't going to be possible to bring on guests that were part of a promotional cycle because mm-hmm. I was launching an independent editorial project produced by an art advisory owned by an auction house so it seemed very unlikely that it would be a it would last and b that that it would be on any PR's first port of call and so I just thought, well, you know, we're not going to be able to get the guests as they go around on promotional cycles. So we'll have to do things off season. And actually, that ended up being like a great thing, because I realized that when you talk to anybody on a deadline, whether they're opening a building, if they're a museum director or installing an exhibition, if they're an artist or whatever it is, anybody on a deadline is a little bit monomaniacal. And their conversation is narrower because they're so in that sort of tunnel of thinking about the thing that they need to do. Whereas if you get someone in their off season, then I think that they have, their thoughts are a little bit more free roaming and it becomes a slightly broader, possibly deeper conversation because they're not as fixated on whatever it is that they are essentially focusing on or there to promote. And I think it's a really interesting space. And so now I deliberately don't bring people on if they're in a kind of promotional cycle because It'll be a little bit more scripted. It'll be a little bit more focused and possibly in a less interesting way. And I think that focus is really good for print media if you're writing an article about the opening of something. But I think for a podcast, it's quite nice to get people, um, you know, on the sort of Thursdays of their brain. Interesting, because I was with a good friend of mine yesterday who's in the process of a museum construction. And I, I just felt a real difference between what they were focused on and talking about and and now where I am. And you're, you're quite right about that. Just in that when there's something that you are needing to be 100% focused on because the possibility of it not happening is still there versus once something that you've been focused on for a long time is finished. 
right? And so there's the path is is narrow when you have a specific task to finish, particularly when it's Herculean. And after that passes, then you can kind of look up, right? And look around and see what else your what else exists in your world. Yeah. Or if the year before, like I'd rather get a museum director a year or two before the building opens because they're, they're they're still on a schedule, but they're they're still thinking through the various possibilities. Things aren't really fixed yet. They're still in a fairly imaginative space to some extent. They're problem solving at the very least. I think even that's better than the run up to the actual opening when things mm-hmm. get much, much more constricted. And plus people are really tired usually. So their energy is not as high as it could be. I want to circle back to the word that you used from one of your editorial advisors, I think was the titling, but this idea of grace in space. And I I use the word grace a lot, and I think it means different things to different people, but I, I think it's often associated with a, a kind of reverence. And I wonder if that's how it's being used here as well. Um, I don't know how Dina means it when she says it. I'll have to ask her. For me, if I think of grace, I remember interviewing the artist Carrie Mae Weems in around 2015, maybe a little earlier. She talked about grace and she talked about how she had made a gift for the Obamas upon their leaving office. And she talked about how Obama operated with grace. And she said Mm. that her opinion, the current Pope operated with a kind of grace as well. And I took it to mean, and I'd have to go back to the interview notes, it's a long time ago now, but I took it to mean that they were people in this world who were thinking expansively with consideration and you know, the, the most delicate curiosity and grace is in holding space for other people and different opinions and conflicting opinions and understanding that it is an asset to be able to hold different ideas that conflict and be able to hold that space for other people to come into that and still have a strong point of view but move within that with a, I guess, you know, a grace, a generosity kind Mm -hmm. of ease rather than an aggression or a constriction or a binary. And I think that kind of grace as she expressed it, I thought, and obviously she obviously has that herself in her work and her readings, her, her presentation to the world. And so I, yeah, I often think of her. I often think of Carrie Mae Weems when I think about grace and what it means to, move through the world with grace when the world around you is fraught and in turmoil. Yeah, we're just, we're living in such complicated and complex times. And just this morning, I was wondering if I often have what I'm thinking about or working on in in my life ends up in what I'm writing about or podcasting about or talking about. And there's just a culture of so much anger, I think, right now, and violence. And it's at a distance, and then it also comes very close to home at different points. Right before this podcast, I got an email from the university where my daughter is. And in California, they have to send out these announcements whenever there's some kind of criminal activity. It's just terrifying. The proximity and, and what people notice or they don't notice or how close things can be. It's it's hard sometimes to 
compartmentalize and and kind of keep going. And anyway, it's not really a question. It's just sort of an observation. No, I think a lot of people are feeling that if they're not in acute danger, they're very aware of it. You know, there's a sense of the world is at war and there is a sense that everybody within it is at war in different degrees too. I, I also think that America specifically, I was surprised when I moved to America because I I guess America does such a good job of selling itself in the movies. Uh, no matter how real you believe anything is, I think the imagined idea of any country is is really powerful. And I think Europeans don't always get it because they have healthcare and they have free schooling and they have all these things, this sort of social compact that's been made, this social contract, I guess. And in America, you don't really have that. So there is always, even in even in the best of times, for for a lot of people, an underlying anxiety because without that job, without that X, without that Y, you know, there's a sense of things being precarious. And I felt that very much uh, living in America, you know, and also I was an immigrant, so I was on a green card. So there's always a sense of being vulnerable, I think, because if you lose your job, you lose your health insurance. And especially if you are a carer for other people, that's a big responsibility to have, or if you have your own medical issues. So I think that's most people's lived reality in a way that a lot of Europeans don't really understand because they can't really fathom not having healthcare in some capacity provided to you by your government. So I think, you know, I think about that a lot, you know, the the systems and within which we live also lead to a sense of things being more fragile or more robust, even in the best of times. And these aren't the best of times in any case. It's so interesting to hear that. And, and as you share that, it sounds so kind of obvious. And yet I hadn't thought about it in those precise means. And that underlying anxiety, I think, is it's palpable. And it's the volume sometimes gets turned up or it gets turned down. And I think one of the challenges is that when you're interacting with other people, you don't know how loud it is for them at that particular moment, right? And and everyone brings to every experience and every interaction wherever they are, right? Like what they what just happened to them. And there's no way really of of knowing how to meet people because you, you don't know you don't know what their experiences are. But to to have that sort of insight into like a ubiquitous aspect of existence here in the US, which is where I am, is is really interesting. Yeah, it's I think it's just living abroad in a country you're not from, even for a brief period of time, gives you different lenses on the things that you've taken for granted, the things that, you know, good and bad, the things that you would like more of where you're from, the things that you didn't perhaps appreciate in your own life before you saw saw it elsewhere. You know, it's kind of an interesting state to exist in as a as a sort of foreigner. And I think a really useful one, you know, I really enjoyed it in a way, you know, I enjoyed not feeling totally at home because I think it's a little, it's, you can't really take that much for granted when you're in that state. And for me, that was quite helpful. I, I don't mind being in that state of existence. It is a particular one and not for everybody. I understand for me, I always was quite grateful in a way because I think it gave me a different lens 
on life, on, on how to live, and all of those things that we all think about. So tell our audience a bit about yourself. You you referenced being in America, and and then the implication is that you're not here anymore. But give us a little bit of your backstory. I guess I grew up in the UK. My parents are both Irish, and I grew up here in the sort of uh, near near Nottingham. You know, if you know Robin Hood, you'll have heard of Nottingham, and. I always wanted to go to America. We used to go to America a lot when I was a kid. My being Irish family, so there's a lot of family. And so we used to go and visit my aunt in America, who used to be the presidentially appointed head of the National Park Services. We used to visit her and my parents are the kind of people who make friends everywhere they go. So we made these lifelong friends on an airplane once to Los Angeles and we're still friends with their kids and their kids' kids. And, and still visit all the time. And so we used to go to the States a lot. And I used to think it was the best thing ever because there was there were ice machines in the motels, which seemed extremely exciting. And there were swimming pools almost everywhere we went because we were often on the West Coast and baseball caps, which I was obsessed with and things like that. And, you know, also like pop music was coming out earlier in the States. Movies were coming out earlier in the States. So it literally was moving ahead of the speed of life in the UK. And so from a very young age, I used to think I'm going to go and live in America when I'm older. And then I kind of forgot about it in my teens and early 20s because it was the era of cheap European flights. And so I really enjoyed being in Europe and traveling around in those years. And it wasn't until I started working in the art world that I remembered that I wanted to live in America and specifically New York at some point. And it wasn't at first because I first worked for, well, yeah, to, to even go into the art world was like this idea I had. And I didn't really know what the art world even was. I didn't know anybody in the art world. I just had had a great history of arts teacher and art teacher at school. And I'd studied English and history of art at university and then I'd done a master's in history of art but specifically turn of the century art and politics in Germany 1890 to 1945. I'd applied to do a PhD and had been accepted in principle to do that and felt so deflated by the acceptance that I my sister pointed out it probably oh. wasn't the right thing. I remember going for a drink with a friend who'd also been accepted and she was really excited and was toasting and I felt tired <laughs> and I thought maybe I should be a bit more excited about it and I, I didn't really want to do it and I didn't know why mm. but I felt that I was spending a lot of time in libraries writing about dead people for no one to read ever and I felt like I wanted to get closer to life and I thought maybe I'd go and work in a museum and I wrote to lots of museums for jobs and didn't hear back from anybody and thought maybe letters had been lost in the post because <laughs> I really didn't have any clue about how the art world actually worked which is that I was just completely underqualified for any of those jobs. I was getting desperate and I'd been offered a job in a corporate bank that my dad had thought I was an idiot not to take. I also didn't have any other job or income. And so I was feeling a real pressure to try and make the art world work. And luckily for me, it was the very first Freeze Art Fair. So it was 20 years ago. And my boyfriend at the time was an artist and he got us into the fair and I went around everything that said London and said, I would like to talk to someone. I love your program. I love your, I'd look up at whether it was a gallery and talk about their stable of art. I love your artists. I, if it was a magazine, I'd say, I love your editorial. Like I really didn't know anybody I was talking to, but I just told everybody I love them and that I'd love to be in touch. 
and it was the first night so it was a party and most people were like can you get off the stand and I was like yes can I get a card first I was so desperate I just left my pride at the tent door and then I emailed everybody who gave me a card and wrote to them saying you know can I get a job and from that I got two internships one at Tim Taylor Gallery and one at the art newspaper in the marketing department and so I kind of split my time between them earning peanuts and I think like Tim Taylor paid I think 10 pounds a day and I think the art newspaper paid your train fare yeah I did that and and it was really interesting and then anyway then the art newspaper offered me some cover like some the office manager was going on leave and would I cover that and I did but I didn't really want to be an office manager and so then I was leaving there and I didn't really know what I was going to do and I got a phone call as I was going down the stairs and it was from Hauser and Vert who had my CV on file from the year before and asked if I'd want to come and interview for a front desk job which I did and then they gave me the job and they told me I was their third choice which I didn't care about at all <laughs> and they just opened in London and they had like four people working there and it was chaos and it was really an eye-opening experience because obviously the standard and the pace at which Hauser moved was unlike anything I'd ever really experienced and there were so few of us working there that we would just work like we would work so late that the tubes would be closed I did that for like a year and a half I became Ivan's assistant Ivan moved over to the UK I became his assistant and then it was the same kind of thing that I was really enjoying it and I really learned a lot and I, I really did learn a lot like they forced me to learn how to be much much more organized than I naturally was and I still use Hauser and Vert filing systems in my head and in my computer and then I left and I went to go work for Anthony Doffe he was organizing the gift to part gift, part exchange, part sale to Tate and the UK, you know, his collection, artist mm -hmm. rooms. So I worked with him on that for a year. And then I remember talking to Erica Bolton, who's a PR person in the UK and saying, you know, and she had been really instrumental in that deal between Anthony and Tate and very creative. And I hadn't really understood that that's what PR was. Um, I think I had an idea it was like absolutely fabulous and I didn't really know what, what it was and so she said you know to come and work with her so I did that and I worked on all the kind of contemporary art and architecture projects in the UK like things like the Tate or Gagosian or lots of different architecture projects and it was really interesting but I, I remember saying to my colleagues one day don't you ever just want to write the stories yourself and they were like no not really and I thought, oh, I think I'm in the wrong job. And so mm. I was in Venice for the Biennale and was talking to some friends from the art newspaper and said to the new editor at the time, Jane Morris, oh, I, I'd been offered a job at the art newspaper a year before and I, I turned it down. And I said, I think maybe I made the wrong choice. And she said, well, do you want to come and cover the art market section? Because Melanie Gerlis was going on maternity leave. And I was like, well, I don't really know anything about the art market or journalism. And she was like, well, you know, it'll be a really stiff learning curve, which it was. And so I went and did that. It was great. It was really interesting. I learned a lot. I had to work very hard. And then when Mel came back, they said, you know, did you still want to go to the States? And I did. And because a few years before I'd been trying to go to the States and I'd, I'd spent a lot of time and money uh, all my holiday, really just going to the States and going around asking people for jobs and or talking to people or trying to get somewhere and anyway my timing was dreadful because it was 2008 and everyone thought I was insane because everyone mm. was being laid off 
I was kind of going, you know, American dream. And everyone was like, it's a nightmare. Like, it's not the time. And so it didn't really work. And I just thought, well, maybe I needed to change career. And that's when I'd gone to the art newspaper. And then they said, we remember you used to want to move to New York. Do you still want to do that? And I was like, yeah. So they sent me to the States um, to grow the American audience and the, you know, I guess the business in America. And at that time, there was only one other person in editorial. So I immediately doubled our editorial strength wow. by my physical presence, Helen Stoyless, who's brilliant. And so we kind of grew it into, a, you know, a different office. It was really fun. It was, we had a lot of freedom and Jane gave us a lot of support. We worked very hard. And through that worked with people like, board on board people like Julia Halperin, who I still work with now. Yeah, so that's how I got to the States. And then in 2016, I left the art newspaper after a really difficult thing with their then leadership around my maternity, which had become litigious and then resolved amicably, but did mark a demarcation point in, you know, I was imagining I probably wouldn't be promoted when I got back after that. And so I was thinking of who I wanted to work with and what I was going to do. And I started realizing media as I thought I was entering it, you know, all those years before was in a completely different state. And as a new parent, I realized who, and really the breadwinner, I realized it wasn't going to be really viable for me to freelance, which I was doing all the way through my pregnancy. And I started working again when my daughter was like four weeks old. And I just realized that I was going to have to do something else. So I made a list of everybody I thought was really interesting. And then I took off that list, everybody I thought was a known creep. And then it was a very short list. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And top of the list was Alan Schwartzman, um, who had been someone I'd always spoken to for stories as a journalist. And I thought, you know, he always had given great advice and obviously as he's known for doing. And so we had a lunch and he said, well, why don't you come when you've had your baby, why don't you come and talk to me and we'll see if we can figure out a job. And he had this idea for this independent editorial project, a newsletter. And and so then that was a whole other phase, I guess. I found that I'm inclined towards moms <laughs> and working moms in our field. Are there things that you can say around that experience? I never really have spoken about it, but I always wonder why. And I think it's because you don't really want to be seen as someone creating trouble. But I'm not sure I did create trouble just by, you know, having a child. I think fundamentally the problem was at that stage was that when I'd moved to the US or when I'd moved to the US, I'd moved on a UK contract with UK rights and maternity rights are different in the UK than they are in the US. They're more generous. They're better. Mm -hmm. They were. And at that time, New York, New York's a little bit better now. There, are, There is legislation now guaranteeing certain minimums. At that time, unless you had been incorporated for a certain number of years or you had staff over a certain, you know, a certain number of physical bodies in your office, you didn't have to give even an hour of maternity. And so I just remember it taking a very long time to have the conversation. And I was getting increasingly nervous about why it was taking so long to just confirm what I thought was confirmed, which was that I was entitled to a UK maternity and I remember getting just yeah just very nervous and knowing something was amiss but kind of hoping it wasn't and I remember going into a meeting with the then CEO and um, he started talking about how we all know what women are like and 
but I I couldn't really understand what was happening but I also knew really on another level what was happening and I and it was like just so you know like we don't trust that you're going to come back to work so why would we give you maternity leave and why would we give you any pay there's no real incentive for us to do so was essentially the message and I was a little bit stuck because I was on a you know my immigration status was dependent on the art newspaper and I was heavily pregnant and so it was all very frightening and I I tried to resolve things and I also was on a you know journalist salary so I didn't have a ton of money to do a lot but then things changed at around we got to around Christmas and and so I was talking to an art dealer uh, who's a friend who said I'm going to pay for a lawsuit for you so they offered to they offered to pay for a lawsuit and that was really a big turning point because I then could write to them saying look you know obviously we communicate about work but from this point we'll have to communicate through lawyers about the maternity then there was a much quicker resolution and so it was a real wake-up call for me because I realized that in the UK there's a lot of sort of the sense of benevolence and companies being more socially minded but actually it's just a governmental structure that companies exist within and left to their own devices I'm sure there's not much natural benevolence and so it really changed my well it really changed my life I guess because I then had to change you know I just felt like it it wouldn't really be productive to return to the art newspaper but I didn't really know what else I would do and so and I you know I work for them and I'm very friendly you know some of my closest friends are still from the art newspaper they have different leadership they don't have anything really negative to say they have different owners you know the whole thing's different but I do think I didn't know anyone else that had happened to which again I guess is another privilege that that wasn't that widespread in my world or I didn't think it was and so it was very very stressful and it was financially stressful and it was legally stressful because I didn't know if I would be able to stay in America or what I would do and so I think that's all quite obvious. But the thing that I didn't know was that, and I never, I never was told this about being a parent. And I think it's true of being a parent. I think it's probably true of being a carer is that there is this really empowering thing that happens when another human is your responsibility, which I think is that your ego leaves you in a certain way in, I mean, the the good of the sort of arrogance of your own ego might leave you but I also think the doubts that can hold you back when you're centering things in your own ego that slightly leaves you as well or it left me and I remember feeling very focused and very sure of like needing to be on another path and needing to make sure that that was a success and just having to tell myself that this was going to work that there would be no doubt because it had to work and so there's a drive, I think, that's not really much discussed when it comes to parenthood. You know, you're told all of this, all the stuff that's true, that's hard. There's more financial stress. There's more logistical stress. There's more time impact and all the things, bodily changes, friendship changes, all of the things that happen when you become a parent are true. But I don't think, at least I wasn't really ever grounding my thoughts about being a parent in this really amazing thing that happens which is that you shift totally into another gear because you're not really the focus so decisions that I might have prevaricated on or I may have doubted myself on or I may have I don't know been 
rolled over a little more I just was much firmer on and and I think I think that's really great I remember saying to you know one of my friends at the art newspaper at the time I felt like I had a kind of cloak of strength around me and I think it was just because you know you're like for me and there's different kinds of parenthood but for me I was carrying a child not that you have to do that to be a mother but I remember thinking like I'm growing a whole life in here like it's a miracle and so this is just going to be a phase but like the miracle is going to live like the miracle is going to be the thing and this is just going to be something in the rearview mirror at some stage in my life and and I think that's really great you know and that's that's being a parent I don't know if if there'd have been a comparable situation that wasn't about maternity even though it was so stressful for all of those reasons it was also a different experience for all of those reasons thank you so much yeah it the whole thing makes sense and it is I think such an important story to tell and I have a different situation but a related situation that I didn't tell about for a really long time for maybe similar reasons. And I think it's really important for people to know that these things happen and that there are ways to address them. And I'm super enthralled by your description of what happens to the ego when you become a parent and I I talked about that without having the same kind of knowledge, I think, that you're talking about it now. But it's interesting because in a situation at the Berkeley Art Museum, the man who was my boss at the time, Kevin Conzi, I was told basically I had to choose between feeding my daughter and going to a donor event, you know, that I was the, the curator for, and subsequently told the story that that's when I realized that I would leave being a curator and become a museum director so I could treat people differently than I had been treated. But the the thing that stuck out for me is that he thought that I was operating from a place of ego, which was the place that he was operating from. And I explained that I, I mean, because I've had kids my whole career, it's just never been about me. It's It's always been about my kids and then the job that I do in service of of being that provider. And I think if people haven't experienced it for themselves, they can't necessarily understand what that feels like or where that energy comes from, but it is an eternal wellspring. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, I think that I came of age in that kind of, I think the probably the most popular concept of being a mum is just you know surviving on wine getting through it and I think it's really interesting because it kind of diminishes the experience in some ways Mm -hmm. I think it's a really powerful experience and I think the power of parenthood is something that's never really discussed and it's profoundly changing and I think it's true of being a carer I think there are these profoundly meaningful human experiences that we have or can have in this life and most of us will touch on those experiences somehow um, caring for another person and I think maybe it's so powerful it's hard to discuss so it's sort of I don't know I just didn't I wasn't really aware that that's what it was like and I wasn't really and I had this conversation recently with a friend who was thinking about having a baby but they're like you know they're at this stage in their career and I was like yeah it, it changed my career in the best possible way because 
of what we were just discussing around the ego of it, but also, you know, at, because there was a rupture, because I knew I was going to have to change what I did, I really had to think hard about what I wanted to do. And I needed to work. And I also, you know, a big part of my identity is working. And so I wanted to work. But I just thought if I'm going to be working every day, I want it to be really interesting. I really want to learn something because I don't want to be going to a job and just watching the clock, waiting for the time to pass so I can go home. Like it has to fly by. Like I want to go and be so engrossed in what I'm doing that the day's gone because I think as well, any kind of event where you have to, well, I think having a kid, you just, time becomes this whole other thing. And so for me, how I spent that time became really important as well and not only what we all know about like working parents being super efficient but also I wanted to do something I, I care deeply about that I found truly fulfilling and creative and and so that's why I guess it was such a short list of people <laughs> but yeah I do think I and I always say that to my friends who are thinking of having kids like it's it's everything you've ever heard about how difficult it all is. But it's also, you know, for me, it was all these other things that I hadn't really considered or been told about or seen in media or popular media or watch movies about, which is that it, it really, for me, it was this incredible act of concentration and focus of how much time there is and how to spend that time. And what is worthy of your time? Because if you're not with your kid or your kids, it has to be something really important. You know, you have to be, for me, I I needed to be contributing to something that I thought was of equal value. I mean, I agree. But I also think that's if you can do it. For me, ultimately, I'm also at this point, the moment in time, I'm the, the, the provider for my child. So if something went terribly wrong in the art world and I couldn't get a job again, I'd, you know, I'd do anything like I'd... Right. I'd work in a, you know, I'd work in a restaurant, I'd work in a bar. Like I'm not bothered about any of that. But it was like, if I can try and do something, if I if I could, what would I do? And yeah. for me, I was really lucky. And again, it was that kind of rupture thing. And it was I was so broke when I had B. I was working like crazy up until up until the point of having her. And then I started working, you know, within weeks again, just to try and make rent. And I I was picking up freelance writing. And most of the stuff that you get commissioned for, you know, when I was at the art newspaper, I was the editor of US News and the art market section and special projects. So it was very news driven. It was very market. It was very trade. I didn't get to interview that many artists, like maybe every now and then for fair papers or something like that. But it was the kind of the business pages, essentially, of the art world. And so, but when you're freelance, most of the stuff you get to do is speak to artists. That's the stuff that like magazines want or like, broadsheets one and so I was going around in this kind of bizarre sleep deprived state going to talk to artists and I used it quite selfishly as an opportunity to just ask these people like how do you live your life like what you know how how did you decide this is what you wanted to do how did you get over these things I remember talking to Howard Hodgkin who was talking about these traumas in his life and asking him how did you move through that what did you do and or how did you focus on something? How did you use your time? I guess I was asking people and, and I just thought it was so great. It was like the best thing ever because I 
and I've always thought this about the art world is that it's it's a really interesting sort of place gathering of people because it's a little bit like being in the pages of a novel and I remember at that point particularly I felt like I was roaming around in other people's stories in this really lovely way you know that people were giving me that space that they would talk about things and and it was I guess I was coming from this point of curiosity I was trying to figure things out and I was looking to people to see what they'd done and how they'd lived their lives and what choices they'd made what regrets they had what the challenges were what the opportunities were and I just thought it was really amazing it was a really really lucky thing to do in a really great way to spend your time like I love reading and for me it was like I'd get two hours to kind of it's like sort of like intravenous reading you know you're just talking to someone and absorbing all of their story and so I really enjoyed it and I thought you know if there's a way that I could carry on doing this and kind of getting deeper into I guess people and how they live their lives and what they do and the choices they make and how they think about art and what it's for and why it matters I think is a really really lucky way to spend your time essentially thinking about having these really interesting conversations with people and so I thought I could carry on doing that that would be great and so that was really what I what I wanted to do if I could and I wanted to be able to write and I wanted to stay a journalist if I could and but I was also a little more willing to let go of it than I had been and for years I've been so focused on that and then I just began realizing the media landscape was shifting so quickly that a long term and I was watching editors sort of generation above me leave publications and have nowhere to go and it was like there's there was no real ladder anymore because so many publications were closing the writing was on the wall around ads and the kind of work we were getting I was getting to do even was shifting so much I remember because it was all becoming so event driven around art fairs and biennials because that's really where the advertising money was coming in and with the internet people weren't really reading as much so they weren't subscribing as much you know people people always bemoan the state of media to me and I always ask them what it is that they buy what do they pay for who do they support financially and you know so few people actually pay for journalism they might subscribe to the times but that might be it and so that was already happening and so I was just thinking it's but again I don't know if I'd have focused on that if I hadn't been in that situation of rupture and having to make a choice and so I sort of freed myself from that. And it was actually great because I ended up doing all of that stuff, but just in a really different framework. But I don't know if I would have done if I hadn't have let it go in a way. Well, that's what happens sometimes. And I use that, I use sort of a metaphor that if I realize that I'm in a tug of war with someone or something, I just let go. And usually the other person doesn't realize that you've let go and and they end up kind of falling down, right? And then you remain standing because it's it's a, a way of kind of surrendering unintentionally to win. But and I think it's also about like sometimes your dreams they're old. They yeah. need to evolve. You know, right. like you need to evolve. Like the things that you held so dearly in as these beacons, maybe you did it. Uh, maybe maybe you need a new dream. You know, maybe there's another thing. And I think it's I'm not sure we always see it that way because 
it, you know, we're, well, I don't know that I did because I always get, I guess I thought, you know, you figure it out when you're an adult. And I don't know that I knew that when you're an adult, you keep changing and you keep, things keep shifting up and, and that you need to then move with that and not kind of resist it because I think I was resisting changes that were bigger than me in media and trying to find a way to make an older dream work and then kind of realized I didn't maybe I didn't want that anyway it's so interesting right when you realize that you actually don't want what you have or you don't want what you thought you wanted and sometimes it it is about the thing itself having changed and oftentimes it's it's actually about you so where where do you think the opportunities are now in looking forward what are you interested in the opportunities for for who i guess just kind of being in the world and being in the world of art it's not the most optimistic time i would say i think there's a lot of areas of squish i think we're at a hinge point i think the ideas of what we value who we value these are all the questions that are being asked mm-hmm. and we're also at this huge generational shift and so i think that in 10 years in five years in i I think now a generation is five years because of the internet i think that we're going to be looking at just a completely different space and and i think i mean i don't know i you know i'm not sure i can predict the future very well i i was struck when we did this podcast called hope and dread and it was a documentary podcast about power we interviewed around 40 people and i was really struck by the end of it that the two people who'd spoken most convincingly or with the most with the deepest consideration and thought perhaps about the future were the futurist and the astrologer and I was like oh they're not in the art world and they were like the only people really not in the art world and they were the two who really were engaged with what the future might look like and I think that's a sort of reflexive position of the art world because there's constantly this sense of storing things of retaining value of safeguarding history for future generations of paying homage to old art histories and ways of doing things you know collections are built upon the pile you know the collection that's gone before and so change isn't something that I had the cut that this our particular corner of culture is very good at and I think it's there's huge change because of technology and and the art market has become so dominant that it's it, you know its values are the dominant values but the art market is changing so much and I think we're seeing that happening we're seeing a generation of collectors who whose taste has really been that sort of post-war American moment that generation of collectors are you know many of them are not actively buying in the same way and many are selling and all their heirs are selling and I think the big question is to what extent younger generations want that art and how many of them want that art and what people want to buy and how art history matters or doesn't really matter, how people get information. And I think that the current generations have a, such a completely different experience of the world than the generations that have formed the tastes of the museums and the mainstream market, that there has to be 
a break. There have to be a series probably of, of ruptures along that continuum that we've essentially had for decades now of taste and a value. And I think some institutions will adapt, some will collapse. And I think we're beginning to see some of that now. And I'm sure that we'll see more of that. And then I guess the question then is opportunities. I think they may just be new. I think things may just look completely different. You know, I think if you were starting a newspaper, you know, if you were starting a journalism career now, you know, I'm not sure where the opportunities to write really interesting things are anymore because I'm not sure people read anything anymore. But, you know, it's a lot harder for all of us to read. And I think as well, we can sort of see, you know, social media in its current incarnation is sort of like gasoline on a fire. And it's, I think sometimes in the discourse, social mediaification of our brains Mm -hmm. happening and Mm -hmm. the sort of lack of space for conversation. And I think everybody feels that though. Everybody I talk to seems to feel that. And so there is a an appetite, I think, for deeper conversations, for disagreements that can be held again with grace. And, and so I, I do think people crave that. It seems to me that people feel people feel that. Um, another thing that you know our editorial advisors talk about often is people have a lot of feelings and they don't really know how to talk about them. And a lot of people operate from a place of trauma and don't really know how to talk about it. And I think the art world doesn't really know how to talk about stuff, but I think a younger generation does and is very open. And I'm sure that will create change because it's just coming anyway. I think technology is changing. And I think that like, if I look at my daughter, I don't think there's any way that her generation is going to be as idiotic as mine about technology. You know, we've just got these phones and we're like, ooh, and off we went, letting them take complete control of our brains and our lives and our habits. I don't think that generation is going to be as we were just wildly enthused and enraptured and didn't really pause for consideration of effect. And I don't know that anybody sees social media that way anymore. And so I think we probably were at a sharp end of a wedge of, of that stuff. And so I think that's a hopeful thing. You know, if I, if, like I look at TikTok, it's like, great, you know, there's people doing such interesting things and like a huge amounts of different conversations going on and all these passions and not monomaniacal at all. And most of that innovation isn't in the art world, which I think is interesting, but I think there are different forms of art. And I think that the value of art as the art world has increasingly narrowly defined it, there's a question of whether that becomes the sort of precious relic that sort of floats off on its own cloud. And I think it may to some extent, because you know there is so much to do with wealth, income, disparity and wealth disparity around the world that there probably are just parts of culture that become relics that get stored in vaults and freeports and are valued there and I think that's fine and I don't think that that is everything and I think it's becoming increasingly clear that there are other things happening for our last podcast season how how many artists talked about process as opposed to product and, you know, seeing their ideas as interesting as their outcome. We're seeing so much more collaboration in so many ways. I do think that's a really hopeful area, I guess I would say. You know, one thing I've learned is that you you kind of build your own, build your own team. And 
a lot of my peers and friends are much less reliant on an organization or an institution or a media company to provide them with security. And so people are kind of fashioning things themselves in these interesting constellations. And I think that's happening up and down the scale and is leading to much, much more collaboration than was common when I first started in the art world. I think it's really great. I think it's really interesting. Collaboration isn't always easy, but I've certainly been doing much, much more collaboration myself. And it's been like transforming, you know, Julia Halperin and I do our Burns Halperin report where we examine data from museums and from the art market, looking at representation. And over the five years that we've been doing it, we've, you know, we sort of have these reviews after every edition of what worked and what didn't. And collaboration is at the core of it we collaborate together we have to collaborate with the museums and we're grateful for all of their efforts to give us all this data so it's always been a collaboration but increasingly we collaborate with all these different groups who are also working with data different ways of thinking about things because you're really building something new and it's much much easier you get so much further much faster if you're moving with people who are trying to move in the same direction as you even if they're trying to do different things and their outcomes are different I think if the values are aligned then it adds a a depth and a velocity to things that's super interesting and uh, you know we've and it's changed the way we write about the reports you know we just don't center ourselves in it and give it out to other people to react to and respond to and it's been really brilliant you know I've, I've loved I've learned so much from that and those kind of collaborations just keep increasing exponentially I think once you're sort of open to them then they that just becomes a path you're on where you're moving in this different way through the world so uh, yeah I guess it's sort of finding people whose interests or energies are aligned and moving with them in these constellations I, I guess there's opportunity there it's a little less I mean not that the art world career path was ever particularly clear but I think it's less clear than ever because of that, there's an openness to new ways of doing things, which I think is necessary. Obviously, it's why people are doing it. A lot of people are having rapture. You know, if you look at the art market, like I, I think there's been so much consolidation by certain companies because all of these businesses that were just so stable and sort of maybe even stale for a really long time, like take the auction houses you know, they're completely different businesses now than they were 10 years ago. And they have completely different staff and they're all private now. There's no public reporting. They all have, they're all trying to carve out, at least you could say, different business models to different degrees of success and confusion or clarity. But then you've had a bunch of people who've left the auction houses through redundancies and layoffs and or leaving of their own accord. And all of those people have gone into other jobs and they bought their way of working into either their own private things or into other companies you know you have more galleries closing you're seeing those dealers moving into other businesses and so there's much more kind of cross-pollination I think than there used to be because because technology is changing things so much and businesses are changing so much and I think you're seeing it in museums like it occurred to me recently that I hadn't I don't think there's ever been a point in my life when I've spoken to so many people who were directing as yet unbuilt institutions it's just a kind of phenomena 
and also artist estates and foundations were really growing part of the industry because of the phenomenal wealth of that kind of post-war generation and and what their heirs and what they do with their legacies I think is really interesting it's like a whole I, think, I remember the art newspaper starting to write about foundations and estates and realizing it's essentially a, a kind of micro industry that's kind of springing up in the middle of the art world which is quite conservative and doesn't really change that much galleries are changing so much in the way they do business there's so many more things the idea of a stable of artist or a point of view is is different now than it was fairs you know the whole thing is shifting and there's been this kind of 20 years of growth and now we're in a different moment and so i think yeah it's bringing a lot of people together in ways that they probably didn't expect they probably a lot of people probably thought they had careers for life and so many of those industries don't offer that anymore you know it's hard to think of journalists when I talk to my journalist friends even the ones working in big publications like where would they go if they weren't there I think people have to think differently about their careers and that obviously then leads to different outcomes so in amongst all of the change and tumult I think there will be Lots and lots of different things that we just probably aren't even thinking of yet. Ways of working, organizations, that kind of stuff. Such a good answer. I was struck by what you shared earlier about being in a time of transition for yourself and the the latitude to be able to just ask people questions about how they survived different circumstances or what their thinking was or what their strategies were. And that's part of why I love conversations like this as well, because you can just sort of ask what you're curious about and really have no idea what someone's going to say. And then you get the, the feedback, which is sustaining to then, you know, go away and, and spend some time thinking about. So yeah, 100%. And it's also, you know, having people that you can do that with. You know, I said to Alan for the first season of our last podcast, The Art World, What If? It was so important to me to be working on that show um, because it reminded me of that period of life when I had just had my daughter and and just being able to, you know, I'm very deadline driven. So no matter what else is going on in my life, if there's something I have to do, I'll always make sure it gets done. I'm very productive in that way fortunately you know just having the opportunity again to just go into people's lives and really interesting people and ask them how they're thinking about the future what they would change what if they could do x what would they do what motivates them and I really feel very fortunate that I have these relationships whether it's with Alan or Julia that I get to work on things that are profoundly interesting to me I feel very lucky about that you never know how stable anything is because no one does. And I think we're all aware of how unstable things are. You know, anybody alive in the year 2023 is aware of that, having at the very least lived through a pandemic. So it's, I think there's, you know, yeah, I feel really grateful for it. I feel really lucky that I can spend my time in this way and and make, you know, an income and provide for my child. So I I feel really lucky about that. And a lot of it's to do with the people who trust you, whether that's people who you work for or people you work with or people you interview. And, you know, so much of it's about, I guess, to bring us back to where we started, that sort of generosity. And I guess that's really where the opportunity is, is finding those spots of generosity and grace and sort of extending it as much as anyone can in their own way. 
I totally agree. And we can't see each other because we're just in conversation, but I have a huge smile on my face and I love the way you just brought the beginning of the conversation back as a form of closure. And I love this invitation to imagine how things could be. And that's what I'm going to take away from our conversation today. Thank you so much for, for joining me and being in conversation and for saying yes. I've, I've found that incredible things happen when people say yes. So thank you for doing so. Wasn't that an amazing conversation? So my next guest two weeks from today is Oliver Barker. So he is the principal auctioneer at Sotheby's and he joined that firm in 1994. So he's been there quite a while. He is a key figure in major auctions in both London and New York. He is incredibly charming. He loves biking and we spent a lot of time together. He was the auctioneer of, I think, all the Art Crash auctions when I was there. Well, actually not all of them, but many, many, many of them. And he is just incredible to watch in that role. He is smart and charming and incredibly great at his job. So you will for sure enjoy this conversation. See you here then. And as always, thanks so much for listening and being a part of our community. About Art is part of the Why Art Matters Project, a global initiative that makes art accessible, relevant, and transformational. We connect all to art through books, a podcast series, talks, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by William Melbourne. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, Please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listen, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We'll be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being part of our community.